I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. This morning we're joined by golf course architect Jay Blasey. Jay uh, was an integral part in the design of Chambers Bay um, under um, Robert Trent Jones' uh, junior design and uh, now is out on his own. recently completed a great project at Santa Ana uh, Country Club and is a big part of the Sharp Park movement and restoration in san francisco uh jay welcome on thanks so much andy i'm excited to join you yeah yeah it should be fun um hey the thing i always like to start out with with these conversations is i'm curious about how you got into golf and then how when did you kind of decide you wanted to be a golf course architect yeah well for me it started really early uh and uh, kind of close to your heart. My dad grew up on the south side of Chicago and uh, was a caddy at Beverly. And so that's how he fell in love with the game. And uh, he met my mom at, at the University of Wisconsin and they settled in, in Madison. And so when I was born, he uh, he brought plastic clubs to the hospital. And when he, w- uh, he, was a, he was a teacher and so he had summers off and on his summers off, he worked on the grounds crew and he befriended uh, the superintendent, who was a, a, a influential guy in, in Wisconsin from the superintendent side of things, Monroe Miller, and so when they they got built their first house, he can he convinced the superintendent to come over and build a putting green in the backyard. So uh, I was lucky enough to grow up. I I had a putting green in my backyard, and then we moved when I was young, and we ended up with a putting green with two little bunkers, and then we moved again, and I then we uh, moved out to the country and had seven acres so then we had three putting greens in the yard or three three little golf holes in the yard so uh, my interest in the game started you know literally uh when i was born and all through my childhood and then my interest in in architecture really started very young as well when i was four or five we'd go out to dinner and i'd flip the placemat over and draw golf holes and crayon and uh we'd take all sorts of family vacations always driving vacations and i just spend the whole trip in the back seat with my face plastered to the window looking out at the the farm fields envisioning golf holes and stuff so um the the interest in that started started very young and, and uh and then was very uh, fortunate that uh uh and thank my parents again they were really the ones who kind of gave me the push when it was time to go to college i had figured out that most people in golf design had gotten a degree in landscape architecture and 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 so i knew that and was passionate about designing golf courses but for some reason didn't necessarily think of it as a a viable career or anything and they were the ones who kind of kicked me in the butt and said no you actually have you got to go for this if you're lucky enough to find a passion in life you gotta you gotta do it you go into business you know at any time but chase your dreams or whatever and 
So I went to the University of Wisconsin, got a degree in landscape architecture, and, and uh, after school ended up with uh, RTG too. Nice. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, getting to do what you love and had a passion for since you're a kid is probably like the most rewarding thing ever. I mean, you work. It doesn't feel like work, which is is got to be so refreshing for you. It, it is, and I think that would be one thing that I would, you know, whether it's golf architecture or anything else. I mean, I think, you know, as a as a country, as, as a, a as a society, we'd be far better served if we really encouraged all of our uh, young people to find a passion and and chase that because if you're passionate about something you're going to be good at it and uh you're going to put you're going to put in the extra time and effort and um you know everything is better you know when when somebody's passionate about something the outcomes are always are are always better so um yeah i I feel fortunate i pinch myself every day that i get to do this and I, i wish more people had the opportunity to follow their dreams and chase their dreams yeah, it's. Um, I, I imagine uh, how long till you move out. You're in San Francisco. You you can't have a, a putting green in your back now yard now. I bet. But like, how long? You know, when are you when are you gonna get your your putting green, your own putting green? <laughs> that, uh, that's a great question. Yeah, there there, there are no. Uh, I, I don't have any putting green here in the, in the Bay Area. That's for sure. Uh, I feel very fortunate to have a a roof and four walls. <laughs> uh, the cost of living out here, but uh, I I'm, I'm lucky enough that uh, if I if I hop in the car and go 20 minutes, I get to make use of the Stanford practice facility. So that's a pretty good putting green uh, backyard situation for me. Yeah, that's good. So growing up, did you have to like take care of the putting green? Did you learn some like agronomy from, from that? And like, uh, who, who had to mow the green? <laughs> well, I, my, uh, I would mow it. My dad would mow it. Uh, I have a younger brother. He, he, he would mow it. I, I probably was not as good or, or in tune with the, uh, uh, the maintenance side of things as I should have been when I was little. But uh, interestingly enough, yeah, my dad had this really old, cool, cool mower that uh, I think he had gotten uh, somehow on some kind of auction or something and, and whatnot. And we'd mow, we'd, we'd mow it and whatnot. I did get to lay out the first little court. You know, when, when I talk about the backyard putting green, this is nothing too fancy. I mean, it's a small little residential lot, mm-hmm. but we made up a, 18 hole course, you know, the longest shot was 15 yards, but we made up a little 18 hole course in the backyard. So that was probably my first, uh, layout was laying out the 18 hole course. And then we made up a little scorecard and we'd always have little competitions in the backyard. It's it's, it's, it's a good way to grow up. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. My, my buddy, I I had a really good buddy uh, growing up that lived up the street and we both, you know, we'd play golf like all summer long together, but when we weren't at the course, we were pl- we'd play uh, front yard wiffle ball golf, and like thank God, uh, you know, God bless our neighbors because we would we had all these different holes. You know, the street was a, a water hazard, and we'd play across into people's yards, and you know, the trees were the holes, and I mean, it was so much fun. But you know, it, it was you start to design kind of holes like oh this one's a dog like left like a, and you gotta you know the different tough features of it you have to lay up sometimes if you couldn't carry the carry the uh street so it it is it, it's so fun when you're you know we wish you could go back to that almost 
Oh yeah, it's a, I, I've done the same thing, and, and it's great fun. Yeah, what, what's better than that? Growing up like that as a kid, uh-huh. I uh, I had a really funny uh, thing happen. You know, by just by happenstance, my next door neighbor, uh, who I a number of times as a as a six year old was taking divots out of his yard. You know, <laughs> uh, and here I am. Uh, you know, twenty eight, thirty years later. Uh, I'm working on Central World back up in northern Wisconsin, and uh, it, it, it was time to kind of uh, make a pitch to the, the board of directors at, at Century Insurance who were, who were going to approve the project, and in walks my former next-door neighbor, who <laughs> now, you know, he's the head of a, now he's, uh, he became the head of an uh, energy company, and he's on the board of directors, and he looks and he lights up like a candle and I look at him and, and he just puts his arm around me and he looks to the rest of the board. He goes, the last time I saw Jay Fozzie, he was hitting golf balls out of my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> so it, uh, it comes full circle. Yeah. It comes full circle. That's, uh, it was, you know, thank God if any of my neighbors are listening, they got to, you know, they, uh, they let me and, uh, my buddy just, just hack divots out of their front yard all the time. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I gotta be honest. I, uh, I I'm not a big the biggest Jones family fan. Um, I uh, having played a lot of their courses, I, I I disagree with a lot of their principles. And I'm curious from you working on the inside. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about what it's like to work for. Um, RTJ2 and and kind of how the whole design process works with a with a you know one of the biggest architectural firms in the in the world. Yeah, so I I think you know to touch on your comment first about you know the Jones family and design philosophies, I think it's important to to recognize you know when you when you talk about the family, there really are kind of three different parts to that that tree right so you've got rtj senior uh and and then you've got the two sons uh bobby rtj2 and 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 reese and i think it's important to make sure that you know they're all kind of uh it'd be it's easy to kind of lump them all together but but in reality they're each their own entity right Mm -hmm. so yeah i i never had the chance to meet rtj uh senior uh i know some of the you know many of the people in the RTJ2 office, obviously, uh, and Bobby will be, you know, tells lots of stories about his dad and, and stuff. So I, I never had a chance to meet him, and I've really spent very little time, uh, been in the same room with Reese, but really haven't spent any time with him. So uh, in terms of my experience at RTJ2, it was it was a great experience in that, you know, I was a kid right out of, uh, you know, right out of college, and you get the opportunity to work at, like you say, one of the bigger, more well-known design firms in the world. And you just get exposed to so much. I mean, there were projects all over the world. They came in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. So you were exposed to, uh, you know, a municipal project that required a RFP and an RFQ. So you you got exposed to to that kind of process and, and what goes into trying to, to, to win a job that way. And at the same time, then, then another project was uh, going to be a, a private club that was privately owned by a billionaire, right? So you, you're getting to see uh, different ends of the spectrum from that side of things. 
the sites that came across. I mean, there would be sites that were really special and others that were uh, not special at all. You'd, you'd see, you know, uh, whether it was something in Asia that was a dead flat, you know, um, rice paddy, and then uh, something else in Asia that was, you know, the side of a mountain. Uh, and then, and then you'd, you'd see all, you know, so you, you got to see uh, and got exposed to everything. And then, uh, you know, even in the golf design world, even the big firms, you know, what you call the big firms, they're not very big. I mean, we, yeah. we only had a half a dozen people, you know. Uh, so then you get to learn about each of those people, and, and they each have a different background and story, and they kind of have their own little design philosophy or, or things that tendencies that they like to do on the projects that they work on. So, um, you know, e- even if you don't, uh, agree a hundred percent with, with each of, uh, with past work or each of the design philosophies, it was a wonderful, uh, opportunity and, and experience and great exposure to a wide variety of things, uh, uh, part of the golf business. Yeah. I, I imagine the, the big firm allows you so many, opportunities to whether it's not even working on but getting to just see great you know some of the best courses um you know it it, and as well as you know getting you know the volume of work and the volume of uh projects is is so high that you get inundated so much quickly as a young kid yeah, I think coming right out of school, it was a like I said, it was a great experience. You know, my first couple of years there, I I didn't, you know, I was assisting other people, so I wasn't playing a real creative role uh, in any any project. But you know, when when you see uh, uh, when when the you know whether it was Bobby or or uh, somebody who was doing business development went out and they took a trip to Europe and they come back and they say, Hey, I met with this guy and here's, here's the, the topo map for this site. Uh, you know, and, and, and then somebody in the office puts together, a excuse me, puts together a preliminary routing just to see what could fit on the site or a preliminary grading plan. And then, you know, if my job then in those first couple of years was to, uh, you know, trace that or draw it up, pretty or, or enter it into the computer or whatever, you know, that's just, that's an opportunity. You know, how many, uh, uh, 22-year-olds get the opportunity to spend six hours looking at the, the, the topo map and, uh, routing and trying to understand. And so what I would do is I would, I would do whatever I was supposed to be doing, which is, you know, drawing up somebody else's idea. And then I'd take that same topo map and take it home at night and Indeed. lay out my own course. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and do my own thing. And then I'd bring it in and share it with whoever I was working with and say, Hey, you know, give me some feedback on this, you know? So uh-huh. uh, again, just kind of great exposure all the way around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what would you say you learned most, um, uh, over, uh, during your time there? Well, I think I, th- again, I think it was, uh, you know, it was probably, probably not any one, lesson but but there were just exposure to different things like you know uh exposure to the rfp process for public projects and and meeting with clients from all around the world and different cultures and different backgrounds and one thing that bobby pointed out one day we were on site that that is something that i 
take with me and, and still think about a lot is, is we were out there talking about, uh, you know, a certain golf hole and, and, you know, he was asking me to, to walk him through my thoughts on something. And, and, um, and then he said, well, you know, it's important to remember that people see things differently just because you and I are standing next to each other, looking at the same thing doesn't mean that we see it the same way. And so it's really important to uh, be really good with communication and make sure that you're, you're verbalizing and you're talking and you're working with whoever you're, you're working with on the project, whether it's the, the owner or another designer or the contractor or whoever, uh, to make sure that you really communicate well and understand uh, what they're seeing. Don't just assume that because you're standing next to each other looking at the same thing that you see the same thing. So that's yeah. something that, that I, I took away and, and I, I use every day. Yeah, I, I feel like um, that's like when when people get to walk with an architect, and I see it, you know, when I've, I've played with, I've gotten the opportunity to play with some architects is like, you know, they just see, they see things in such a different way. And, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty well read and I, I see things in certain ways, but that, you know, they and being able to communicate that to someone is so tough because a lot of times like the person you're dealing with on a, on a project from whether it be a club side or an owner side, isn't necessarily as well read and, and don't, don't understand, you know, the principles behind architecture. Absolutely. You, that, that is so true. And, and you, you see that on it. You know, I, I see that on every project I work on and it, it just becomes more and more clear over time. And it makes sense. You know, if somebody were uh, trying to explain to me, you know, the, the details of the, you know, the wiring in the house, you know, I wouldn't understand what they're talking about, and they could be eloquent and 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 walk walk me through it at a basic level, and I may or may not get it right. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a golf architect, yeah, I, I go out and I you know look at an existing golf hole, and I can immediately right in my mind see what I might want it to be, or or see an alternative, or or if you're looking at vacant land you know, you can go out there and, and you can see right away how how you might want certain things to, to unfold. But the ability to try to communicate that and, and walk people through that is uh, it's an important skill and it's a, it's a challenging exercise. I think when we were working on uh, Santa Ana over the last few years, we would, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with the members kind of walking through uh, what the what the vision is, what the plans were, and then we'd we'd have like a construction walkthrough, you know. So we'd be in the middle of construction, and Friday afternoon we'd invite the members out, and we'd go walk around, and I'd walk them through. Okay, here we are. We're on the first hole. We're on the left hand side. We're starting to shape a bunker over there. The green's going to be up ahead, and this is the what we're trying to set up. And you'd walk people through that, and and then say, are there any questions? And somebody would say, is there going to be a bunker and i said well yeah actually i just told you we're actually standing in the bunker right here oh i couldn't see that you know mm-hmm. uh looking looking at dirt is really really hard hard for people and as soon as the grass goes down now all of a sudden kind of the aha moment comes oh now i understand what you were telling me but sometimes it's it's really tough along the way to uh you know for people who don't do this all day every day to to kind of see it yeah i um the course i play at 
in Chicago. I have, I, when I say I play at, I've played there like three times this year. But it's an old Donald Ross, and all of our greens are like so small compared to what the original design was, and they're they're just small ovals and circles because of irrigation and maintenance things, and you know it just happened over time, but. You know, and then they put in these sprinklers and you see sprinklers on where the green should be and even trees on where. And I, you know, I texted my buddies. I took some aerial shots with my drone and then, you know, photoshopped over them like where the green should be. And they, you know, nobody really knows what you're, you know, they they look at it and they're like, oh, this guy's just crazy. But then when you play <laughs> with them and you walk and you show them, it's like, look at this, where this green should go. And then look, imagine this pin. Like, imagine how this pin completely changes the hole and how when you get these greens over close to the bunkers, how much more of a challenge it is. And it's not necessarily even just the pinnable surface. It's the stuff that's not pinnable that makes the ball roll off the green 10 yards. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that they would be, uh, that uh, you could talk to them for months and months and months, but if you snuck out in the middle of the night and, and mowed down the area, in question to uh to something close to green height they'd probably see it a lot a lot easier yeah it's um yeah hoping to do some of that this fall but um so you know on the subject i you know what do you think went wrong with golf course architecture not and not to say there weren't any good projects but with this dearth of of projects that you know end up now being just you know kind of soars on the golf community from like 1960 to 2005? Well, I think uh, a couple things. So first, I, I, would, I, I might have a little bit different uh, time frame because I think that uh, probably in the mid-90s, there at least started to be a lot, uh, a lot of better stuff that started to come mm-hmm. about. So I, I don't know if you'd go, you know, from 95 to 2005, Sure, there were dozens of, of uh, golf courses, or maybe even hundreds of golf courses that uh, people spent a lot of time and money on that aren't very special. But there also were some that that are pretty special. So I'm not sure you want to yeah uh, totally I, lump them all together. But <laughs> but I think I think to me there's there's probably three things. So the first thing to that, to keep in mind was that that kind of coincided with. Um, technology advances in terms of earth moving in terms of agronomy so all of a sudden whereas in the early 1900s a golf course was pretty much built where a golf course should be built right a group of people would get together and they'd say hey we're interested in forming a golf club and they'd go out and they'd find the appropriate land uh, because they didn't have the ability to create their own environment right so they had to find an environment that was suitable for golf uh, and so the land was better, you know, there weren't golf carts, uh, you know, so now you're, you're, you're laying out a golf course that's, that's walkable and you're trying to lay one out that doesn't require earth moving. So now fast forward to the sixties and all of a sudden we're building golf courses probably where they don't belong. We're building them in swamps and deserts and mountainsides. And all of a sudden we've got golf carts and we've got big, bulldozers so now we if the environment doesn't work for us we'll create our own and if the the parcel doesn't work well we can we can piecemeal a couple of them together and and play a hole and drive 200 yards and play another hole uh so those are some of the things that that probably 
went awry. The other thing is that the reason for building a golf course probably changed. You know, back in the early 1900s, people got together and they, they built a golf course because they wanted to play golf. The vast majority of the courses probably from 1960 on were probably built for a reason other than golf, whether that was to sell real estate or fill hotel rooms and be an amenity for some kind of a, a resort. So uh, with those things in mind, the reasoning for the for having a golf course was, was different. That led to, uh, in my opinion, what, what is very troubling, and that's just a ton of artificial features, right? So all of a sudden we're using the bulldozer to, to craft a new landscape and we're building a bunch of artificial lakes and we're uh, planting flowers and planting trees everywhere and now we've got golf carts so we start putting in you know, seven miles of, of concrete ribbons all over the place. So all the stuff that uh, takes away from, from great golf and all the stuff that we love about the golf from the early 1900s, uh, you know, we kind of, kind of did the opposite <laughs> for a big period of time there. Uh, and now we're kind of at a, a very interesting time in golf architecture and that we've got a lot of wonderful projects that really uh, – are, are uh, you know, kind of recapturing the essence of the early 1900s where somebody's building a golf course for to build a special golf course because people want to play golf. And, and at the same time, then there's still also a number of projects where you know, people are building a golf course to fill hotel rooms and uh, to sell real estate. So you've kind of got this interesting dichotomy that's going on now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what do you, do you say, you know, I think one of the things I... I, I think about it a lot is all these golf courses that were, you know, they, they aren't, you know, they aren't the best golf courses, but what happens to them in the future? Like, how can we, you know, are they, can they be fixed and can they be made into something that's good for the game and a good golf course for people to play every day? And how, how do you go about doing that? Yeah. So I think it, it it's a, uh... It's an interesting question, and like everything with golf, it's site-specific, right? So the right solution on site A is not the, not the right solution at site B, and the right solution in city A might not be the right solution in city B. But we're definitely at a time in golf where you know, we have a lot more courses closing than opening, and what's interesting to me is, is the ones that are closing aren't always – the worst golf courses, right? Mm-hmm. So, which is which is tragic. But it, it seems uh, one thing that I've certainly noticed is that there's so many, like you said, usually uh, golf courses that were built from 1960 on or renovated from 1960 on that just leaves so much to be desired, and uh, and that's really a shame. And so uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that over the next 20 years many of those golf courses that you know one of my favorite things to do is to go look on google earth right you could just go around and go check out different golf courses all over the the world or all over the country and there are so many golf courses that might be in a good location in in a good city uh in a good area and then you go look at the golf course and every single hole you know, the green is the same size oval. There's a bunker short left. There's a bunker short right. You know, there's usually 
one fairway bunker out there. Everything's been planted with trees over the last 40 years. So, you know, you know that you're just hitting the same exact shot over and over again. You get up on every tee and keep it between the trees and you hit into every green and it's, uh, you know, avoid the hazards right and left and get it onto the green and stay below the hole. So, Mm -hmm. uh, but those are golf courses that might be in a good area uh, where, you know, if and when the time comes to, to replace the infrastructure, the irrigation system and the drainage and stuff, rather than investing in all of that infrastructure and keeping things the way they are, when it's time to invest in the infrastructure, that's the time to, to make some changes and, and make sure that, hey, we can take this this property that's already permitted as a golf course and already zoned as a golf course and has a good market and get rid of this mediocre thing and make something special and give people the stuff that, that, that uh, we all kind of yearn for, the stuff from the early 1900s where people had options and angles and there was a lot of variety and, and uh, strategy and, and uh, thought to thought to the round of golf. It's, it's interesting. Uh, I... I host a lot of people on this podcast and I have noticed over time that almost everybody, you know, not at, um, I, I would say the vast majority of people that I host on this podcast that are involved with golf today grew up playing at a municipal or a, a public golf course. And I think to myself, okay, the majority of those experiences probably weren't the best golf course experiences. And imagine if, those courses were really fun to play and had really sound architectural principles, not to mention the sustainability aspect of, you know, if you don't have too many hazards, how much cheaper it is to maintain and how these different little things like how much, how many more great people would we have, you know, involved with the game still if they grew up at a place that was really great to play. Yeah, I think um, I, I certainly agree that that municipal golf is 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 important, and it's where uh, many people got their start. I certainly got my start uh, in in Madison playing on municipal golf courses and, and loved it. And and uh, I wholeheartedly agree that it would be awesome. It, it doesn't cost any more money to build an architecturally interesting golf course than it does a architecturally uninteresting golf course right mm-hmm. and if you're smart about it uh uh you can you can craft one that's uh maybe easier uh to maintain as well at the same time to your point uh, i guess where i may differ a little bit is that you know at that age you know as much as i was interested in golf uh as a eight-year-old or a 12-year-old i probably wasn't at a point where i was really uh at least consciously uh, uh, understanding the difference of great architecture at that, at that point. I think I was excited to have a go play, uh, a safe place to go play golf and have, have fun with my friends, you know? Um, and I think it's important that we certainly preserve and, and do everything that we can to, to make sure that municipal golf does stick around because in, in today's climate uh, with, with, city budgets and stuff like that, that, that's a tough task. I mean, if people have a choice between, uh, you know, the fire department and the golf course, the fire department's going to win. And it probably should. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and yet, and yet the golf course does have a very important place in 
um, in a community. It's a, it's a great community gathering spot. It's a place where people can have a healthy activity, but particularly if people walk, uh, you know, uh, playing golf, uh, uh, you know, and golf courses, uh, you know, Bobby always used to talk about the golf courses are kind of the green lungs of a city. You know, if you fly across America and look down, most of the green spaces in America's cities are golf courses. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a great place to be outdoors and, and with uh, and, and walk and, and get a good experience that way. And it's a great place to bring a community together. Yeah, I think if you if you just focused on like city owned golf courses for like major metropolitan areas and, and really made those like really fun, cool places to play, it would it would make such a difference. I, I think about my home t- city, uh, Chicago, we have a nine hole course called Sydney Maravitz. It used to be called Waveland up on the north side of the city. And it's it's a it's right on the lake. I mean, the most in it's right in the heart of the city. It's the easiest course to get to, but the golf course is just so bland and, and there's a lot of trees. It's tight and you get a ton of beginners out there. And I always think like, why not just take all the trees out, make it fairway grass all around. And you've got these beautiful lake views. And instead of it taking four hours to play nine holes, it probably would take, you know, three hours or two and a half. And it'd be just a much more interesting golf course. Let's do it. Yeah. I'm ready. I I just need to <laughs> I I, I got to get in with big politics in Chicago. I guess. <laughs> well, that's an easy thing to navigate. You yeah. know, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that uh, you know one meeting and and you share your vision and and they'll be ready to go and make it happen, right? Yeah, no money. You know, just <laughs> go in there. It's a it's a pretty much bankrupt city. Just go in there and say, hey, we need a we need a couple million for this. Um, but um, so I, I'm curious. I just with you know being a younger architect and having seen you you probably remember hitting a lot of golf balls i remember it uh we're close to the same age and having lived through this this change in technology and especially the golf ball um what do you see as like the future of golf course architecture because what we're seeing from the high level player is that the Really, the skills that you need now are being able to hit the driver long and straight and be a good short iron wedge player and make putts. And this whole long iron uh, and working the golf ball has kind of died with the advancements of the ball in the last 10 to 15 years. No doubt about it. And and the truth is that, you know, when you combine the technology advances and how that impacts the, you know, really the 1%, the, mm-hmm. the, the very top players of the game, golf is not sustainable at that. I mean, in order to, uh, you know, if we're going to keep technology the way, that, the way that it is or keep allowing advancements in technology with, you know, the tour players and the college kids, I mean, you got to build a 8,500 or 9,000-yard golf course to challenge those guys, and that means more land, and then that means more water and uh, more resources, and it's, it's just not sustainable. So, Not to uh, mention, of course, that that course is only played by 1% of the population. Well, that's the thing, is that, you know, so much of the focus in the golf world and the attention and the, uh, the media relates to a game that, that the other 90% aren't playing. Right. So, uh, 
but the sad thing is what people see on TV is what they then, uh, you know, kind of expect or, or demand at their facility. So, you know, Augusta National and the Masters, I mean, everybody in golf loves the Masters. And, uh, you know, all golf architects appreciate Augusta National, right? I mean, there's nothing really bad to say about it, except for the fact that you, you could make the case that the, the televising of, of the Masters and Augusta National, every spring, everybody who ever plays golf watches the Masters, and then they go and they expect or want those types of conditions at their golf course. And what they don't understand is that, you know, the golf course at Augusta is, is prepped all year for that event and that they've got an unlimited budget uh, and that that doesn't uh, – uh, that is not the case at, at your local muni in Chicago. And so now there's this, you know, there's, everybody's pushing to make their golf course, you know, green and i don't mean environmentally friendly green i mean artificial green and let's put white sand in the bunkers and and do all these different things so uh those are the things that aren't really sustainable and kind of to your point earlier about municipal golf and stuff we i think we'd be well served to take a look at the scots or take a look at australia and, and see kind of uh how they do it and 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 if we want golf to thrive over the long haul that that's probably a better model to look to mm -hmm. yeah, I, I agree um in terms of uh a project that you've been working on for now nearly a, a decade the sharp park park project and it's the old alistair mckenzie course in uh the city of san francisco owns it and you know it's a great seaside location that over the years has been, you know, a little bit altered for environmental reasons, but just basically a neglected um, course that could be one of the finest public golf courses in the world designed by arguably the greatest architect of all time. Uh, tell us a little bit about Sharp Park and, and you know, the journey of that course. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because it is such a special place. It's uh, it's actually in the city of Pacifica, which is about 15 minutes kind of south of San Francisco. But you're correct; the city uh, does own the golf course. Uh, and and so the reason that it's uh, like you say, Mackenzie Golf Course from the 30s, and, and uh, it's been in the news, and I've been involved, like you say, for nearly a decade because uh, there there was a threat that we were actually losing going to lose the golf course. There were uh, federal lawsuits over habitat for uh, frogs and snakes, and, and two, two local golfers and, and, uh, and lawyers got together, Richard Harris and Bo Links, and these guys are, are true, true heroes in the golf world. So if people haven't heard of them, they should Google them and look them up and send them a thank you note. But they, they basically got together and said, hey, this, uh, this national treasure, this, this museum, this monument's about to be uh, stolen from us, and, and we're golfers and we're environmentalists, and this just doesn't have to be the case. And, and so uh, they, they kind of rallied the troops and engaged uh, you know, the right uh, legal team as well as the, the community, the golf community, the local golf community, and have rallied and, and saved the golf course. So over the last, you know, almost a decade, the, the course has been 
involved in legal battles, and thankfully, uh, due to their great work, we've, we've kind of, we keep winning each of those legal battles to preserve, to, to save the golf course. And then, you know, our, our dream is to, to be able to restore that, and we're actively working towards that, and I think we'll, we'll get there. It's, it's, a, it's a long process, like, like you talked about. You know, governments aren't easy. It's a, it's a site that does have um, challenges in terms of, you know, there's a number of different government agencies that have some kind of, kind of jurisdiction on the property. So uh, navigating those, uh, those, those uh, challenges or, or uh, constraints are, are difficult, but I think there's a, a, a great chance that uh, in the near future we'll get to put some of that McKenzie back or, or unpolish some of the McKenzie that's been dusted over, over the years, and, and I think that will be something that uh, hopefully the golf world will embrace. I know they already have to, to, to save the golf course, but hopefully they'll get a chance to come out and, uh, and see something special in the years to come. Yeah, it's, it's something that I've been paying attention to, and it, you always you always want to see these courses. I, I, I have one in Chicago. Um, it's Downers Grove Golf Club, which is nine-hole course, but it's the original uh, site of Chicago Golf Club. And over the years, the park district, you know, since they took ownership of it, they've altered the course. Um, they built a driving range. And, and now there's like there's four original holes. But I always think about like, man, how cool would this thing to be be to get back to what it was and have a nine hole, you know, C.V. McDonald course that was his first design ever in America. You know, it, 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 it's crazy. Yeah, you know, I think uh, it sounds like a worthy cause to me. I mean, it, it uh, you know, there, it's um, unfortunately we're at a stage uh, where where stuff gets in the way, and, and so it is a challenge. And so uh, that's why people like Richard Bowe, and I'm sure there are others in Chicago and across the rest of the country that need to kind of uh, step up and, and fight and save the day, because this stuff is worth fighting for it is worth saving you know sharp park as much as we're all interested in it from the the golf course standpoint and the mckenzie standpoint it represents all that you would want about what a golf course should be to a community you go out there today and you'll see people you know ages you know five to 90 you'll see you know 20 different ethnicities out there and they're all you know most of the people are out there walking uh, it it just represents what uh, what the game is all about, and and so those places are certainly worth worth fighting for and doing everything in our power to to save, and when we have a chance to to restore them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's the uh, the same same thing out there. It's, you know, it's a packed tee shot sheet, and that's part part of the reason they they haven't done anything is that you know it's a nine hole course that the community makes money on. So if it's not if it's not broken from a monetary standpoint in their eyes, why do anything, right? Yeah, I think you know, it's kind of the bleeding, the slow death, right? If you, if you've got a a major open wound in the middle of your forehead, uh, then you get to go to the emergency room. But if you've got a uh, internal bleeding that you can't see, uh, sometimes uh, you don't see it until it's too late. So, that's that's a great and uh, great analogy. I might have to use that. Uh, I, I've been talking about going to park district meetings and just, you know, just trolling the park district for, for a while now. I might have to start doing that in the winter. There you go. Um, 
So uh, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit, you know, we've gotten on the subject of golden age architecture, and I know your, your kind of design principles are, you know, a throwback to the golden age. Um, who would you say are your biggest influences from a standpoint of architects? Yeah, great question. You know, I think, again, that, uh, you know, obviously um, Mackenzie jumps to mind in terms of, of just exposure to, to his. O- over time, I'm, I'm learning to appreciate more and more um, Ross from a, a routing standpoint. Uh, I appreciate some of those routings. But, again, it's, it's, it's tough to say, you know, I love all the kind of McDonald and Rainer stuff is interesting to see, particularly um, where they would go out of their way to, you know, if they had an idea, they'd if they had to move a bunch of dirt to make it happen, they'd they'd go for it type of thing. So that that that's always interesting. I think again, it's just site specific, right? So um, those principles that uh, uh, and in California, you get exposed a lot to George Thomas. So they're they're all unique and interesting and great and have different backgrounds to them. And, and, uh, but you know, the overriding thing that, that I've kind of taken away from all of them was, you know, I, I personally love the idea of having golf courses be fun. I love the idea of golf courses being natural. Uh, I, I love the idea of, of strategy and the, and the golf ball on the ground and what happens when the ball's on the ground. So I, I'm a huge fan of, uh, ground contours having uh, strategic value, um, and and so I don't you know hard hard to say you know how each one impacts those those overarching themes, but they all they all certainly contribute to it. Mm-hmm. So outside of say Mackenzie, if you could bring if you could bring one Golden Age architect back and have like kind of dinner with them and have them consult on say your your next project you do which one would you bring back <laughs> uh great question uh the cop-out answer but is actually probably accurate would be it would depend on what the project was right? uh-huh. so, yeah uh, so there's probably a different answer depending on what the site was and, and what the uh who, who the client was so it probably depend and then you got to get into the question of of uh if it's if it's just a dinner are you are you picking somebody based on on uh, personality and the stories that you're going to be told. So, uh, you know, if you didn't have to pick up the bill, it might be Tillinghast. Yeah, that's uh, what I was going to say. To... <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, a, a known uh, a known socialite, you know, an interesting guy and uh, a great architect. It, it, it's amazing to me I, with the USAM at Riviera how the, I think the Philly, the Philly Golf School and architecture, uh, you know, for those that aren't, aren't familiar with it, I have an article on my site, but this whole Philly golf school is incredible with George Thomas, A.W. Tillinghast, William Flynn, um, you know, then you have Hugh Wilson, Crump, and all these guys, you look at their work and they've, they've, they've started because of, you know, them getting their ass whooped in championship golf and championship amateur golf. And now you look back and they arguably have the majority of the timeless classic championship golf sites all came from that, those three guys or five guys. Pretty, pretty awesome. 
Yeah. <laughs> Pretty awesome. No it's, doubt about it. I mean, uh, and, and to think back, uh, you know, you know, talking to, you know, spending a night talking to Walter Travis and, and talking golf architecture and then talking about playing, playing career. You know, so mm-hmm. those, those would be, uh, interesting conversations to have. Uh, yeah, you know all sorts, of, all, all sorts of great things. It would be awfully fun to go back in time and have a uh, have a round table or, or, like you say, have a good dinner. It's a, it's something I wonder because like those guys like openly collaborated, and I think a lot of it, you know, one of the things that's changed is it it, it wasn't as a business then as it is now. But that open collaboration, free flow of ideas, led to such great work, and I I ever wonder if that will happen again. I think it it might be you know a little bit with you know how Corin Crenshaw with their all their associates you know spawning out and Doak with his intern program. But I always wonder you know do you do you ever have peers that you go to with you know asking him questions and bouncing ideas off of him? Yeah, I think that's a great point that you bring up, and I think to me that's one of the exciting things about. Uh, this time in history, you know, and, and we touched on earlier that we have a little bit of a dichotomy going on and that there's a number of projects that, you know, might be done for a housing development or fill hotel rooms and architecturally may not be very interesting. But then you've got a number of other projects that uh, are very interesting and, and are on unique sites and, and sometimes very special pieces of land. And, 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 you know, when you think about the architecture world, yeah, you've got an interesting uh, range of, of people in the industry, different ages and different backgrounds and coming from different family trees, if you will, of architecture. And so, yeah, I, uh, I've been very fortunate to, to meet a number of different architects, uh, old and young, and uh, try to, to keep in touch and bounce ideas and have chatted with different people about collaborating and doing different things. And I think those are things that, uh, hopefully I think there's been a little bit of that and, and you touched on kind of the, you know, whereas the collaboration in the early 1900s might've been the way we read about it now, um, you know, might've been these guys, but for, for anybody listening who hasn't been involved in a golf project, there is an endless amount of collaboration, you know, on every project, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's the, the guy whose name you read in the magazine. Uh, but there are, there are people, uh, you know, the people who are shaping the golf course are involved and there's regular on-site debates and conversations. And, uh, you know, a good idea can come from anywhere, whether it's the, the, the client or the, the guy digging the, 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 the trench, uh, you know, a good idea can come from everywhere and uh, anywhere. And, there is a lot of collaboration on every project, but I think you will probably see more, uh, you know, there'll probably be one-off projects, but you'll see more collaboration between uh, people in the industry. And, and that's something that I'm, uh, I like the idea of myself. Yeah. I, I think it's a, it would be interesting to see if you did a modern day Pine Valley type project where you get five guys and you collaborate. Obviously there has to be, one person that's the boss, but you know, gotta have a ringleader. Yeah, you can't, you <laughs> can't, and there has to be a unified vision. But like, you know, the idea of like Pine Valley, where like they're, you know, the Hell's Half Acre hole, for example, is is like 
notoriously a, a tilling has golf hole. And, um, you know, you, you see different things. And, and the same thing with Marion, where there's so much Flynn in it that it, it could be considered a Flynn golf course. Um, that, it, you know, these, these, these golf courses became, you know, they're the greatest golf courses in the world, but, you know, they were collaborated on and, and the, the spread of ideas. Um, so I think we've, ta- we've talked about this pipe dream idea. I have enough. Uh, um, I, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, Chambers Bay, um, kind of your big project. Um, and I mean, you did it, uh, you were the project architect on it during your time at uh, RTJ2. And um, it had the U.S. Open, it's had uh, the U.S. Am, most recently it had the Pacific Coast Am. Um, I, you know, it, it, from all accounts, I mean, it, it's just a beloved golf course by people that play it. And also the, um, the players, uh, you know, all rave about it. Um, how, you know, like, and the only complaint always comes back to be, you know, the greens and the putting surfaces. How frustrating is it to have a course that is universally loved, but like the two things that, you know, the U.S. Open complained about was spectating and the green surfaces, which are really out of the architect's control. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, lots, to, lots to chew on there. I'll, yeah. I'll start by saying, uh, you know, this we is... talk about kind of being, being universally loved, and I, I think that uh, to be to be fair, uh, I guess I would I would say that it's probably not universally loved. I know mm-hmm. a number of the, the players uh, who competed in the amateur and the open. Uh, either didn't like it uh, or hated it, and, and that was okay. Uh, if you look back in history, I would imagine that most uh, special golf courses are somewhat polarizing, particularly yeah. early on. Well, uh, and so that's okay. Well, it's different, uh, also. You know, people always have like a reaction to it being different. You know, there's width. There's so much about angles and different ways you can play the course. So, you know, naturally, like, these guys play the same style of golf course almost week in, week out, narrow fairways, high rough, um, you know, is what I call robot golf, and, and Chambers definitely wasn't that style of golf. Absolutely, and that was by design. Uh, for me personally, when you think about championship golf, and again, now we're just talking about the 1%, not, <laughs> not everybody else, but... but to me, championship golf is way, way too much about execution and not enough about um, thought and strategy and uh, and creativity. And so, to your point, you know, week in, week out on the PGA Tour, it's uh, you know, very little thinking is required. Right, hit it between the trees, hit it between the bunkers. You know, avoid avoid the the pond uh, and <laughs> just not a lot of thinking. And so. Chambers, uh, you know, obviously it's a municipal course. It's open to everybody, but, but there always was the desire uh, and intention to to attract and, and host major championships. And, and one of the um, you know, one of my great hopes for the project would be that the golf course would actually require uh, golfers to to think. And you know, to your point earlier about technology and how it's changed a little bit of the game in terms of um, shot making. Uh, you know, the goal at, at Chambers was, you know, through the ground contours to ask players to hit the ball high and hit it low and, uh, you know, move the ball left to right and move it right to left. And so, you know, the, the greatest joy I took out of 
both of those championships was to watch the best players in the game stand in the middle of the fairway and talk to their caddy and try to figure out how best to get the ball close to the hole, knowing that they had four or five different ways to do it. But uh, if they were smart enough, they could actually figure out that one was would, would serve them far better than the other. So for me, uh, you know, in 2010, watching Peter Uline stand in the fairway and talk to his caddy about, yeah, I'm 200 yards out, but do I want to fly at 180 with a draw into that slope and let it release, or do I want to fly at uh, 190 and hit it high and, and land it at the toe of that slope with a, with a fade to try and hold it? Those were the things that made me uh, most excited. Um, so from that standpoint, yeah, absolutely. I think you know, I was thrilled to death with how the, the amateur and the open unfolded. Um, you know, the, the unfortunate thing about the, the open in particular, you know, it's the first year of, of Fox and their coverage. And, and, uh, unfortunately one of the storylines became the, uh, the greens and obviously the, um, the issues with the, some of the polar that had popped up and, and, and it was, it was very sad because, you know, the people who pour their heart and soul into, uh, maintaining the golf course are friends of mine and very, very talented people. And, and, uh, and, and they know what they're doing. And there was just kind of a big confluence of whether it was weather or championship prep or all these different things kind of, kind of led to something. And then it became a big storyline that took away from so many of the other great things about the event. So that, that was really the only negative, but I think over the long haul, uh, those things will get worked out, and, and everything will, everything will will be fine in the future. And when we first built the project, when we were first getting started building it. Uh, you know, John Ladenberg, who was the county executive and the project visionary, you know, he made it clear in the very first meeting that you know this is a hundred year project. We're creating something yep. here that's going to be here for multiple generations, and our goal is to to get it right for them and to take the long view and to to do everything in our power to make sure that, you know, future generations uh, have a place to enjoy. And, and, you know, that's the, you know, from a non-championship golf standpoint, that's the, what makes Chambers Bay so special is that every day there are hundreds, if not thousands of people that go walk that public trail that uh, is above and weaves through the golf course. There's, uh, you know, golfers that uh, are, are locals and it's attracted golfers from all over the country and all over the world that, uh, have a different, you know, had, had never heard of Pierce County, Washington before, and now all of a sudden uh, they come, and when they come, they stay and they spend money and support local businesses and things like that. So, uh, a lot to a lot to be excited about there. Yeah, I think that's something that always gets lost is like Chambers Bay is so young and its life is a golf course, and you think about like, especially like Marion. I mean, Marion continued to undergo iterations and changes from their first USAM they hosted through all the way, I think it was 1916 they had their first USAM. And then, you know, the golf course really wasn't complete until 1934. And in the meantime, they'd hosted six or seven championships during that time. So, you know, the uh, the, the idea of, like, you know, a, a small change here and there, I mean, the golf course yielded probably the most exciting U.S. Open in the last decade, and 
And I think it, it gets lost, especially with the U.S. Open mentality of the necessity of, of thick rough and seeing guys hack it out. Like, the most interesting golf is exactly what you hit on with Peter Uline talking about it, is when you can put doubt and you can put, you know, you have to, for, you're forcing the greatest players in the world to think about the type of shot they're playing in there is, is just the best kind of golf, um, where you start to see the shot making come to the forefront and you see the best players in the world having to hit different styles of golf shots that you don't see week in, week out. Yeah, to, to my point, those were the things we we're excited about. I mean, there's so many great takeaways. I mean, uh, you think about it, you know, from a from a support standpoint. Uh, when when the Open was at Chambers, uh, uh, well, when the Amateur was at Chambers, my understanding, uh, everything I've been told, is that they had you know um, some of the, the best crowds ever and some of the best volunteer sign up ever for an Amateur. For the Open, the volunteer you know, sign up was their quickest ever fill up. Uh, they sold more merchandise there than they'd ever sold before or, or in, in, you know, many a decade or whatever. Uh, you know, it, it, it did well on TV. And then from a pure uh, playing standpoint, you think about the amateur, you had the number one amateur in the world beat the number two amateur in the world at the time uh, it, uh, for your finale. Uh, when you think about the, the open, the number one, you know, the best player in the in the world at the time, won championship. Uh, the leaderboard, if you look uh, uh, look back, was probably the best leaderboard you've had in 20, 25 years. And, and certainly the back nine at the Sunday uh, had, you know, probably the best leaderboards of anything in the last uh, 25 years. So there's there's a lot of things to be excited about and and. and uh, positive takeaways, and, and clearly there were things that you, you'd like to uh, refine and do over. You know, I think from a spectator standpoint, I was there all week, and you know, the USGA did a great job leading up to the event about sharing with the public that this was a little bit different of a U.S. Open, and that the venue was such that you'd be far better served to go to a grandstand and watch two or three holes from a grandstand as opposed to trying to follow a group, you know, for all 18 holes. And that was, that was the good part. The bad part was the public listened to them and uh, the public went to the grandstands and by nine thirty, ten 10 o'clock, all the grandstands were full. Mm-hmm. And so then you, then all of a sudden you had a bunch of uh, traffic challenges with people walking around, but that's something that you can, uh, learn from you can you can modify a roping plan you can add more grandstands uh, you know those are those are things that could be uh, worked around so um, you know it was it certainly was uh, for me you know as, as a young guy you know who who loves Lynx golf who loves municipal golf who loves championship golf uh, whose dream in high school was to design a U.S. Open golf course to be able to be part of that and watch it uh, from the first first day on site, and, uh, and, uh, interviewing, trying to get the job, and to go all the way through building the golf course, and then having an open announce, and then watch and go all the way through. It's been a pretty interesting journey. Yeah, I, it's it's got to be really cool. I I I envy the the ability for you guys to just kind of watch your pro, or, you know, have your name on something and watch it and watch people's reactions, and then you know to get to 
to see the whole world react to it. I mean, it's uh, it's it's got to be pretty cool. Um, I wanted to get to. We've got a lot of reader and or listener questions uh, from Twitter, and I wanted to get to some of those. Um, just uh, I, I'm not sure if you've ever listened to a pod, but we have a overrated, underrated segment. Um, so they, they'll be peppered in there, and you just you know you can feel free to expand. But you know the general uh, uh, consensus just say you know overrated or underrated on different topics. So those will be sprinkled in here. Um, we'll start out with a uh, uh, overrated, underrated from Barry: uh, elevated greens and false fronts. Uh, are those two separate things? False yeah, front, yeah, we'll do two separate. Underrated. I like a I like a good false front, particularly on an uphill hole. Uh, elevated greens, I'll go overrated. Uh, you know, I, I love golf where uh, the ground game is an option, mm-hmm. uh, and so if you've got a green that's more at grade, the aerial option is still always there. Yeah, uh, but but the ground game is something that I just I just love. So uh, elevated greens have their place, but on balance, I'd just say uh, overrated. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's an easy way to make a lot of golf courses more playable is just to to lessen the grade of that front of the green. That because then you know more people can run the ball into them. Um, Absolutely. So again, go go look at most golf courses between 1960 and 95 and. Almost all of them, the green is two to three feet above the elevation of the fairway. It just it just makes life so difficult for mid to high handicappers who uh, golf's difficult enough for that group. Yeah. Uh-huh. Takes take so much fun and strategy out of it. So. And, it and it has zero effect on on the one percent or the ten percent we always we've been talking about. Um, well, but, in 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 some respects, it actually makes it easier for them because they know they're just grabbing whatever club is going to fly to the middle of the green, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, if I see an open entrance green, I start thinking about running it in. Even if I'm in a, you know, if I'm back in the Midwest and the conditions aren't firm and fast, if it's playing soft, uh, even if it's playing soft and there's an open entrance, just my eye and my tendency to like the ball on the ground uh, gets me thinking about going on the ground, even if it's not the right play. Uh, due to conditions, so uh, in some respects, the little elevated green might make life easier for the, the low handicapper. Uh, yeah, you know, Espe- I, some thought out of it. I think also, especially around the green, because you know, you, the the lob wedge has beca- become such a weapon for shots around the green, and and when it's when it's perched up, you don't even think about it. You just grab the lob wedge and you hit the shot. But when it's when it's flat, you all of a sudden your mind starts to race and you start thinking about different things you could do do i land this you know five feet short and you know kind of hit a little checker you know there are all kinds of things i think it's just more options are good um i think people are just sort of tired of hearing me say that but um <laughs> <clears throat> uh barry also had another question that is uh, i think a really good one he's a he's a hawaii guy so he's he's very interested in in wind and how it plays a factor in design um, you know, the prevailing trade winds affects all courses in, in Hawaii, but then uh, linksy options aren't always provided for the most part, meaning there's a lot of frustrating elevated greens that are tough to access with only one shot option. How do you approach um, perfect, prevailing winds? 
So that's that's a great question, and and, uh, and wind really is a, it's one of the wonderful elements to the game. Um, I think it's it's very hard to paint with a broad brush. Again, when it comes to golf and golf courses, everything is site specific. So, um, you know, for example, if you're in Hawaii or in a windy place and you're building a new golf course and you have a lot of room. Then the then the prevailing wind can impact uh, your actual routing of the golf course and how you lay out the holes. Um, oftentimes that's not the case. You might have a a parcel that's not as big, and where you route the holes is more a byproduct of the amount of space that you have, right? And you need to you need to fit them in, uh, uh, fit the puzzle pieces in. But then you start to think about the wind on a on the individual design of the hole, if you will, uh, right? And and maybe where hazards are placed. Or to, to to our discussion earlier, whether or not the green is open entrance and at grade or or elevated or not. So uh, it, it's all very very site specific. If you do, if you're fortunate enough to have a uh, an open site in a windy area and and uh, you know, if you had the triple whammy of having uh, sandy soil, uh, then the, then the prevailing wind can, can play an even bigger role in, in, in actually laying out the course. Uh, otherwise, if you don't have all those luxuries, it probably is uh, a bigger impact on the detailed design of the holes and the features. That's a, that's a great answer. Um, here's uh, some, with you being a, a Wisconsin native, we got some, uh, you know, questions about the Badger State. Um, from... Two weeks, Mandy. Two weeks from today. Two yeah. weeks from today. Two weeks. Season starts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, with uh, Brent Wagner wants to know what course in Wisconsin would you most want to restore or redesign? Uh, well, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so. Um, in terms of redesign, that's probably not uh, politically correct. Yeah, we'll say restore. <laughs> we'll say restore. So there's there's some there's some neat ones out there. Uh, you know, uh, you know, there's probably a couple in Milwaukee that probably a couple private clubs in Milwaukee that probably would uh, fit that bill. There's there's some underrated uh, kind of hidden gem golf courses. Uh, uh, that that are kind of neat. I our, our family spends a little bit of time up north. There's a nine hole uh, club, Rhinelander Country Club, that's pretty neat. Uh, I think um, I haven't played there in forever, but there's a course in the southeast that's uh, I think kind of more of a mom and pop operation, Spring Valley. That's oh uh, yeah, got got some pretty cool stuff going on. That would be great to to peel back the the layers and expose some of that stuff. Langford uh, so there, there, There's some neat. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, so it's a it's a great time of golf in Wisconsin. Wisconsin's becoming a a hotbed for golf, so I'd love the opportunity to 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 get back and and do some stuff there. I was fortunate enough to did a uh, a redesign of, of uh, Century World uh, yeah. that was very very satisfying and great client and, and very proud of what we've done up there. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love the opportunity to get back and uh, and and work in the Badger State. Yeah, I uh, I'd love to. I think there's a Ozaki Country Club could be so 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 good if they they got rid of some trees and I mean that place has some some really cool features. 
Um, Absolutely. No then, doubt about it. <laughs> have, you, have you ever played Eagle Springs? Eagle Springs. I don't know that I have. Oh, man, you got to get out there. That one's got some cool stuff. Well, it's the oldest yeah. course in Wisconsin. And where where exactly is it? It's in I want to say it's relatively close to to um I played it years ago. Um let me see where it is. Uh, it's in uh but it's got some just unbelievable green complexes and it's you know it's the oldest course in Wisconsin. Uh it's in uh Eagle, Wisconsin. So in uh let's see what is it? It's in uh Waukesha, I think, county. Oh, okay, yeah. So it's, it's cl- Milwaukee suburbs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but nine hole course and and uh, I mean, it just they've got this great volcano green and just some unbelievable cool. green complexes. It's like that that place could be really really good, um, and you know you could go play there for I think it's like fifteen bucks and walk. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah. And it, it's a great little course. It's it's uh. Yeah, it's a uh, summer weekend rate is uh, walking is eighteen seventy five, so very nice, <laughs> pretty yeah. good. So um, yeah, I mean Wisconsin's Wisconsin's getting a lot of pub for all the big uh, fancy fancy places, but yeah, uh, uh, restoring some of the the smaller gems would be a good thing too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like this question. Uh, HPS asked it for every pod. We don't get to it on every architecture pod, but. If you're playing, if you could play one place on a Sunday afternoon with a Sunday bag, what what course are you going to play? Oh. <laughs> that's a that's a tough one. Uh, there's there's so many to choose from. Uh, you know, um, I've been lucky enough to go out to uh, Prairie Dunes a few times, and that's a that's a place I, I love to be out there with a Sunday bag on a Sunday afternoon. That's pretty, that's a pretty special place. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, I mean, uh, the, uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll stick with Prairie Dunes, but just know that there's a dozen of them that are, uh, you know, anything that's a good, good, easy walk that uh, has uh, excitement and strategy and interest. uh, I'm a happy camper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, that's a tough question. I mean, there, I don't think there's a, a wrong answer if you i mean anywhere is is pretty nice to do that especially if there's nobody around you can play well quick. if there's if if there's nobody around i don't know if you're like me if you're out there by yourself i'll you know you, you're playing i'll hit a shot you know you'll hit your approach shot into a green if you don't like how you hit the first one then you drop another one and hit mm-hmm. another one and then you get up to the green and once you get up to the green then you may or may not you know put the ball you originally hit but you might just start seeing different shots to to hit and drop five or six balls around the green. If you're going to do that, uh, then I'll, then I'll stick with Prairie Dunes as a fun place to, to, to chip and putt. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my favorite things to do when I play by myself is I just throw five balls into different spots around the green and try and get all five up and down. It's, it's, it's a fun yep. way. To, I, I recommend it. It's great practice too. Um, all right. So, uh, KDW, wants to know what's the best way for an individual to begin getting into architecture? Uh, well, I'm sure you've probably touched on this in the past. I think there's, um, you know, lots of different routes, uh, again, tiny industry and, uh, and, and small one to get into it. But 
there's a number of good books to read. Uh, and then if you're, if you're really serious about making it a career, uh, I would encourage people to get involved in, in golf construction and uh, golf course maintenance. I think both of those things are um, critical elements to have an understanding of and, and the exposure of, of those opportunities um, will be invaluable. So, uh, you know, getting involved in golf course maintenance, getting involved in golf construction, and then, um, you know, there's there's a number of great books on the subject that I'm, I'm sure that you, you probably have them listed on your website somewhere. <laughs> it's funny. I, I did a books article over the winter, and I put a ton in there, but it's the most asked question I get. I get a couple emails a week. Um, and I need to just write them down into a post because what I end up doing is I end up replying the same way to all these questions. And it's like, God, why don't I just have like a, a post on the site that's like linked right by where somebody, the contact us page. So there's something yeah. I need to do. You know, I think that the, the thing to, for people, you know, there's, you know, Every year, anytime you know I'm on a plane and somebody asks me what you do, and then you tell, oh my God, that's the coolest job in the world. I want to do that, you know. And then you get others who say, you know, I think the key thing for people is to really, for for young people who are interested in golf architecture and and want to make a career out of it, is to really think long and hard to yourself about what do you want out of that career. Are you looking for fame and fortune and to be you know, do you read magazines and see magazine interviews or people on TV and you want to be that person or do you want to be a part of a team that builds golf courses, right? Because there's a number of uh, opportunities for people who want to be a part of a team to build and maintain golf courses, but you may never, you know, be on a magazine cover or, or on TV and, and what you think you might want when you're 18 might be drastically different than what you realize you wanted when you're 40. But, um, you know, it, it's certainly, you know, I, like I said earlier, I pinch myself every day that I get to be, uh, get to be part of it and get to be involved in this. And I think there's anybody who's ever been involved in, in, in building a golf course, I think would say that it's, it's, a a magical process and, and, and one that's very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, a lot less glamorous than people think, especially at the start of your career. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, I think, uh, again, if you're, if you're looking for fame and fortune, uh, probably not, the, you know, probably better off to go get that business degree and go, go make your money somewhere else. But uh, if, if you want to, to wake up every day and know that you're going to get to uh, interact with uh, interesting, passionate people and you get to be a part of uh, being uh, doing something creative and you're going to get to build something that's going to last for decades and decades where, uh, where uh, generations of people are going to go make memories with their family and friends, uh, then, then, uh, then it's certainly a worthy pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, what GA, uh, golf architecture, Texas wants to know least favorite trend in modern golf course architecture. Uh, long list to choose from. I don't know. The <laughs> trend. Trends. I'll just say, uh, 
the, the overarching umbrella for me is, is artificial elements, whether it's a man-made lake or artificial mounding or concrete cart paths or flower beds or planted trees. Uh, all of these things, um, you know, again, we talked earlier about kind of making golf unsustainable. Uh, all of these things, in my mind, detract from golf rather than add to it. Mm-hmm. I I would agree with almost all of that. I think there's... And rough. Oh. I hate rough. I'm on a mission, personal mission to eliminate rough from the game of golf. I'd be happy to eliminate par. Uh, T-blocks. We can get rid of T-blocks while we're at it. Um, all sorts of stuff to get rid of in the game. Around the greens, rough, all it does is it diminishes skill and brings, you know, the the great short games closer to the bad short games. Yeah, I'd t- certainly take, you know, I, <laughs> when uh, I spent the last few years working on a project in Southern California at uh, Santa Ana Country Club, and so the the golf course that was there before we, we did our big project was essentially a 70s or 80s golf course, and, and every single green complex, you know, bunker, short left, short right, the green was all the same size and shape and surrounded by rough and all the greens were elevated three feet. Right. And so, um, you know, in, 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 in going through the process and talking about, you know, what could be, we were trying to do some member education on, on the courses there. And, and, you know, most, most members of a club, you play your course and you play there with your friends. It's what you know and you love. Right. Mm -hmm. But when you really start to study, golf courses you can get a feel for uh boy i'm i'm hitting the same shot over and over and over again and you know every if you went 20 yards around every single green at that golf course and probably the vast majority of other golf courses from that time period everything within 20 yards is the same shot it's a sand wedge and it's either a lob shot out of rough or a lob shot out of a bunker mm-hmm. and there's you know, that's a very hard uh, shot for a mid to high handicapper to execute. And it's not terribly tough for a low handicap uh, to, to execute. And when you uh, introduce the ground plane and, and uh, now you've got uh, tighter ground and, and different undulations and things are maintained firm and fast, now you can play the ball on the ground or in the air. Uh, you can uh, you, those those undulations, whether they're convex or concave, can be can be used. They can become a hazard or a helper, uh, and uh, it just brings out so much more in terms of uh, strategy and creativity. And and the nice thing is for a for a higher handicapper, the the options available to them. Uh, you know, if you're not able to hit that lob shot with a sandwich, you can put it. And, uh, and, and so I just find that to be something that's, that's critically, uh, important. And we hope we see a lot more of, I, I know there has been, uh, uh, there's been a trend towards that, at least in some circles. And I, uh, that's something I'd like to see more and more of. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, uh, last question, then we'll do a couple, uh, overrated underrates. I've been, I've taken up more than enough of your time. Uh, Johnny Begzos. If we rolled the golf ball back to the original Pro V1, would that save old courses? Oh, I don't know that it's a one 
uh, you know, certainly addressing the golf ball and, and possibly addressing clubs together, I think, is critical. And again, this really relates to championship golf. I mean, the, mm-hmm. uh, as much as the, the advances in technology have helped, uh, you know, lesser players, you know, lesser players don't hit the ball 300 yards. It's these top one presenters that are flying at 320. Uh, and that's the, uh, that's the real crux for championship golf. Uh, so I don't know if it's, uh, going back to the pro V one. I don't, I don't know the exact right place to go back to, but I know we have to have to go back and, and, um, and have to, have to get, get it under control. It, it, it needed to be done a long time ago and, and we're long overdue. And, and when that happens, we'll be, we'll be better served. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, it's, it's something has to happen at least, at least on the professional level. I think it's good for the, like the, the regular play, but it's, a, I, I don't I'll even, I, I have less fun on the golf course now because of the ball. Well, I, I'm somebody who loves to, Try different shots, and, and uh, <laughs> even though I've, I've maybe executed the shot previously in my life, I'm not good enough to execute it on demand. But if I see a, a shot that, that demands a fade, I want to try and hit a fade, uh, you know. And so I love working the ball, you know, right to left, left to right, high low. Even if I'm not good enough to pull it off, it just makes golf that much more fun. But uh, you know, so getting back to some of those days would be a, a good thing. I'll be very curious to see how the Masters and Augusta National fits into that equation. I think they have a golden opportunity. You know, there isn't a player on earth that's going to turn down an invitation to the Masters. And if they said, oh, by the way, in 2018, we're going to be playing with the tournament ball, uh, you know, every pro is still going to show up and they're going to be excited about it. So mm-hmm. you know, they hold, a, I'll be curious to see their role in everything. Cause I think they've got the easiest opportunity to, to, to make something happen there. Unfortunately, buying that uh, land might be a, a bat, you know, it might be adding length, you know, <laughs> yeah, <I> know. <laughs> right. very sad. So, well, that's, uh, adding length and planting trees seems to have been the, uh, the model over the last, uh, 30 years. Uh, uh, ho- hopefully, they'll be uh, uh, the next 30 years might be a little different. Yeah. So uh, we'll get the final uh, overrated, underrated here. Um, I'm gonna say uh, green speeds and stimp readings. Overrated, underrated. Overrated. Uh, certainly, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, greens with. Uh, I like greens with contour or, or or speeds that match the contour. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, different a different speed for a different set of greens is probably the right answer. But uh, uh, this this love affair with uh, 13 on the stint meter just makes means that greens need to get flatter and flatter and more boring and more boring. Or uh, if if you've got greens with contour and you maintain them at 13, then they're unplayable and no fun and people get upset and want to change the green. So mm-hmm. uh, it's uh it's like uh. That uh, was it. Nairn in Scotland has a sign that says, "You know, we're we're on the windiest property on Earth, so our green speeds are five to six. So just deal yeah. with it. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah. there, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, and then uh, last one would be uh, the great hazard, as great in hazard. underrated. 
Under. Great heaven. Oh, yeah. yeah. So good, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, golf is supposed to be fun, and what's more fun than a great hazard, right? Oh, yeah. I get I get a lot of shit because I love it so much. But <laughs> it's so good. Good stories, good, great stories come from the great hazard. Yeah. Right? So the more the more great hazards, the more uh, uh, great stories. It's such a it's a it's a fun design. Like it, you know, it is a forced carry for the higher handicap. But like one or two of those in a round is so good because it's so thrilling for them. Well, I think you did touch on a good point there that it could be overdone. We don't we don't need uh, we don't need it on eighteen holes. But uh, uh, but the idea of it uh, at a, at a point or two in the round uh, certain certainly makes uh, for great fun and great interest in my mind. Yeah. Well, uh, hey, thanks for coming on. Uh, look forward to meeting next week at the Renaissance Cup. And uh, who knows, there might be a, it might be a late night podcast on there. You gotta figure that out. <laughs> that, that could be interesting. Yeah, be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Andy, thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I tune in uh, tune in regularly and appreciate all that you're you're doing. And uh, I, I know all the listeners do too. So uh, keep it up, keep it up, keep up the good work. Yeah, follow Jay on uh, Twitter. What what is it? Is it at Jay? Uh, what, at, I, at at Jay Blogley. All right, I'm a, I don't even know my own Twitter handle, so don't be offended. <laughs> so, all right, have a good one, and we'll see you in a couple of days.